0: Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that
1: none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hi, everyone.
0: Before we start today's episode, Brittany and I just wanted to jump in because we just want to clarify that since the recording of this episode, we have learned the terminology people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. In this episode, in which we specifically refer to scientific information around the bodies of people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth, at the time of recording, we use the terminology biological female and biological male. We just want to jump in quickly before the episode started to clarify that when we refer to biological female and biological male throughout the episode, we are actually referring to people assigned female at birth and people assigned male
1: at birth. Now we will go ahead and let the original episode play from the beginning. Today we are back. We are going to
0: continue our conversation about the gender and sex bias in medicine something that so many of us have experienced when seeking medical treatment. So this is actually part two of our episode, and we're just going to jump right in. So if you didn't hear part one, go back, go back and listen, go back and listen first to that episode, and then come and listen to this episode. I mean, yes, you can listen separately, but Context and continuity is so helpful. (laughs) Yeah, they're really made to, like, listen in order. In part one, we gave a rundown of what the sex and gender bias is. So we talked pretty in-depth about that. We gave background information. And then we also talked about how experiencing this bias in our treatment can make us feel.
1: Flashback. Sad, traumatized, and betrayed. Not good. (laughs) As we mentioned in the first episode, The gender and sex bias can affect all sexes, but we are going to focus specifically on how it affects the female sex. We are going to try to use inclusive language throughout these episodes, but in some cases, we may refer to men and women, not to be uninclusive, but to mirror the language of the studies or of the historical information, especially when they refer more to the cultural aspects related to gender, because cis men and cis women are primarily the populations that have been studied in the sex and gender bias. Today, we're going to focus on the sex bias of the sex and gender bias and talk about how science knows less about the biology, disease presentations, and impact of medications on the bodies of people assigned female at birth. We also want to acknowledge that science knows even less about the bodies of people who transition or who are intersex. What's more, the biological males who were studied were mainly white, so the data that's been gathered throughout the decades has mostly been on the white biological male body, and unfortunately that excluded anyone who didn't have that body type. Today we'll be focusing on how this has affected people assigned female at birth. In the last episode,
0: we also discussed the intersection of other identities and how depending on what other identities we may hold, those intersections can further compound the biases that we face in addition to the sex and gender bias, which can have further detrimental consequences on our healthcare. In the last episode, we also mentioned a book called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. And this book is by Maya Dusenberry. Hold on for a minute. Can I just say, I love that title. The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed. (gasps) I've been dismissed. Misdiagnosed. (gasps) I was misdiagnosed and sick. (gasps) Still sick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This title really hits it home. It really is resonating. For so many of us. For so many of us. And we want to mention the book again because we really highly recommend this book. It is well-written. It is well-researched. It is entertaining. It is a book that I think all of us should read, especially women and especially medical professionals, because we need to be aware of this subconscious bias that is affecting our medical care. And two, we want to mention this book because some of the information that we're going to talk about in this episode, we learned from this book.
1: Today, we're going to be talking about how the gender and sex bias has kind of created this knowledge gap. And Maya Dessenberry talks about this way more in depth in her book, which is why we so highly recommend that you go read it. And it will really give you much more of an understanding than we ever could hope to. (gasps) It's like Brittany and I are scuba diving on the surface. Mm -hmm. No, Brittany and I. We're snorkeling. Yes, we are snorkeling. (laughs) And Maya's scuba diving in the deep reef.
0: (laughs) Deep. Like she's not even scuba diving anymore. She's like in one of those ocean. She's a pod. Yeah. Yeah, And she's like going down to like the deep dark ocean where there's only like really weird, scary fish (laughs) who have anglers down there. Their own like lights and you know, like they had to Yeah, and finding Nemo and they almost (laughs) killed Nemo's father and Dory. It was all dark, and then he put on the light, and he was like, here's the light. And then they went to the light, and they were just like, those are Jaws.
1: <laughs> and that is how it deep. This seems vivid for
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked Finding Nemo. It's a really cute movie. <laughs> it's so cute. And that is how deep Maya Dustinberry goes in her book. It is really good. First, Brittany and I want to talk about how this sex and gender bias has produced a knowledge gap, meaning that science knows less about the body of biological females.
1: That seems kind of strange that they know less. They That's really true, know Brittany. Less?
0: Yes, science knows less about the biological female body. Period. Don't say
1: period like that. Period. No, you're going to bring it. You're going <laughs> to call him. He's going to come. <laughs> don't invoke red dragon. <laughs> period. No. Period. No. Period. I'm gripping my uterine <laughs> section. I don't want it to come. You're, he's listening to you.
0: Can you imagine? It'd be so cool if, when you wanted your period to come, you would just say the word "period" three times.
1: Oh, it's like doing Bloody Mary in the mirror, <laughs> except you're going Bloody period, Bloody period, Bloody period. And when you turn around, up oh, there's your period. That'd be so great. You
0: would plan your period. You'd be home. You wouldn't be at any events. You wouldn't be at your wedding. You wouldn't be at any parties or oh, so great. Vacation brunches in class at at work. work. <laughs> Jinx. You wouldn't be anywhere. You would be at home with Netflix on your comfy socks on, your bathroom on, you'd be all ready, the bath drawn. And you would go, period, period, period. Oh, and there he is. Blood would drop on <laughs> your underwear. You'd be like,
1: thank you, thank you
0: for coming at the exact time when I knew you were That come. would actually
1: be wonderful. It would be best, like, could we have that instead? Can we put in a word with, like, you know, the creation of the universe that that's how that would happen instead? <laughs> Can we go back in time? Make a request, please. <laughs> So I know period, period, period that you said. Oh,
0: crap, Brittany. I just got my
1: period. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha, karma. (laughs) So I know you said that science knows less about biological female bodies. But what does that like really mean? Like how do they know less? Oh, my God, Brittany. Science knows less. Okay, but why? Well,
0: illnesses that affect both biological male and female bodies have been mostly studied in. Wait for it. Biological males. (gasps) (laughs) You're starting to get it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, as we mentioned in the last episode, the same disease can present different symptoms in biological males and in biological females. The presentation of symptoms in many diseases has only been studied in...
1: Biological males! (gasps)
0: Yes! For example... Heart disease, which affects both biological males and biological females, was studied for 35 years only in...
1: Biological males! How many more times do I going to have to say biological males? Work with me. A couple <laughs> couple more. A couple more. I will
0: really hammer this point okay, home. Okay, okay. Okay. Many medications have only been studied in... Biological males! And that is why science and doctors and even we are not able to recognize certain side effects of a medication because they've only been studied
1: in biological males. Did I say it enough times? Let's go deeper. Oh. Let's continue. Okay, you're gonna say put it. the scuba gear
0: on. Okay. In this section, which we're talking about the knowledge gap that the gender and sex bias has created, we're gonna say the words biological male many 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 many
1: many 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 many, many times okay i'm ready then i'm ready
0: okay Brittany, i want to say biological males too because it sounds like you're having fun over there so i'll ask you the next question which is why haven't they studied the body of the biological female as thoroughly or in some cases at all and why have they only studied the biological male how did it feel I to was like, say it? It was, fun. It was like a <laughs> sing song. Biological male, biological male. If I was born a biological male, my health treatment would have been different. Very,
1: very, very, very different. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have endometriosis. That'd be nice. You're SOL. You may be Okay, <laughs> let's go back.
0: We were going to go back and ask the the beginning of creation to allow us to invoke our periods by saying period, period, period. I want to also ask... If they'll make me a biological male, Are you sure you want that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I really don't. I'm really satisfied with being a biological female, to be honest. That's nice. Yeah, except the endo and the period and the red leaky blood from the vagina. <laughs> apart that's from fair. that, apart from that, that's fair. I'm quite pleased.
1: That's a very loaded question asking why they haven't studied biological female loaded body. With blood. Period, period. Very loaded. Very loaded with period blood, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so where to start is kind of a struggle, but I think I'll start with that many doctors and researchers used to believe that there were actually no differences between biological females and biological males for medical purposes. Okay, wait. No different. Like Yeah. Like, oh, they're the same except for the boobs and the vagina uterus ovary situation area yeah yeah the, the no fly cavity the no fly zone yeah <laughs> other than that they're the same everything functions the same everything operates the same that's what they used to think
0: hold on I just can't with how ridiculous and that is why I think wait hold on let's just you highlight an epiphany? <laughs> let's just highlight here when I was younger I really thought that medicine was like oh medicine like doctors were gods and they knew everything and medicine was so evolved. And then as I got older, I realized like medicine is a practice. That's why it's called the practice of medicine. That's why you're told to get a second opinion because it's fallible, because it's not perfect, because it's constantly evolving. And when we just look back and it's like, oh, the male and female body are exactly the same except for the blood from the vagina and the milk and the boobs. Like, I just literally can't, like, how would you think our bodies are the same? That's because they just weren't as evolved in science. They just, they hadn't done the studies and they just didn't know. So, And I the just... evolution
1: in science can be drastic. I mean, you think years ago, they thought our uteruses wandered around our bodies. I mean, we've come a long way, okay? Oh, we're going to talk about that in the so trust
0: good. gap section. So, like, hold your horses, Brittany. I'm ready. We, I know you love the wandering uterus and we are going to go there and we're going to talk about it. So, yes. Raina, we're just I'm just so flabber. Just
1: flabbergasted. I'm just fl- fl- flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> that was very satisfying to listen to. <laughs> so, what this whole concept actually is the idea that biological males and biological females are essentially the same except for a couple bits is a kind of like gender blindness. So, studies over the years are starting to show more concretely that biological sex. And the social and cultural factors associated with gender norms will actually affect how medications work in the body. That includes the side effects for the different sexes and the symptoms for the same disease and how the body is affected by the metabolic rate of your sex. And we talked way more in depth about this in part one of this series. So definitely go back and listen to that if you're interested and haven't heard it yet. Not if you're interested. We demand. (laughs) Amy demands. We obligate. I humbly request, if this interests you, to go back and take a casual listen. (laughs) Oh, Brittany's so kind. And to that,
0: I send her a period, period, (laughs) period. Blades out in the corner. Blood drips down Brittany's leg. Oh, that's just (laughs) cruel. Another reason why we know less about the biological female body is actually because of the opposite reason that Brittany just mentioned. Some researchers felt that including biological females, now I'm paraphrasing and I'm really putting my own spin so I don't have the exact adjectives that they use. I'm going to use the adjective like annoying or troublesome or burdensome. You know those pesky hormones that the biological female body has? You know, the hormones, Brittany? And you know how the hormones can, you know, fluctuate, vary, a biological female? Like, I could be menstruating, and you could be on the pill, or I could be pregnant, or you could be in menopause. So many hormonal variances. Oh, the fluctuations. And because of that, hormones are so, my own words here, insert words of Amy annoying <laughs> in the clinical trials so some researchers didn't want to include biological females in the clinical trials because by studying the biological male body the results were more regular and had less margin for deviation or for error so it was just it was so it's just so much easier to study it's like the easy way it's out. just so easy to say the biological male body that you know body that's just not fluctuating because of where the biological female is in their life stage or in their reproductive stage. Oh, it's just such a homogenous, easy body going to give us the good results. We can sell our medicine. I mean, we can. And we'll just
1: pretend it's the same for (laughs) biological females and just hope for the best. We'll just study biological males and we'll just apply it to the biological females.
0: Wah, wah. Oh. Those annoying, frustrating female hormones skewing the results of clinical trials from the
1: dawn of time. Today, Brittany, and I are obsessed with the dawn of time. The dawn of time. We were just like, oh, during the start of creation. <laughs> <laughs> we're just very obsessed with the beginning of the universe today, I guess. And additionally, those
0: annoying, frustrating hormones have been skewing, or should I say screwing, my life
1: since the dawn of my oh she's so clever the next reason why this knowledge gap exists is there is actually a policy that the fda put in place in 1977 which prohibited women who had quote-unquote childbearing potential from hold on
0: yeah childbearing (laughs) potential yeah i don't like that what is what is child what is that like oh i'm past puberty so i can bear a child yes and i'm not
1: menopausal So, So you're between that time and childbearing potential.
0: Puberty, not menopausal. So, like, what are we talking? Like, a couple decades there. Yeah. And just to be clear, they didn't just prohibit pregnant women from the clinical trials. Childbearing potential means any woman that could potentially be pregnant. So, I'm a biological female of 20 years old. Prohibited. Okay. I'm a biological female of 41 years old, who has not had menopause yet, then definitely prohibited. I am a biological female of 28 years old.
1: Have you had your period?
0: Yes, I'm 28 years
1: old. Well, I mean, I don't know your life. Prohibited! <laughs> 31 years old! Prohibited! 38! Prohibited! 17! Prohibited! 14! I had my period. Are okay, prohibited? What <laughs> <laughs> oh part God. of it? Don't you understand Amy? <laughs> I don't understand. Why am I prohibited? You cannot participate in an early phase drug trial if you are, quote unquote, of childbearing potential. Wow.
0: Okay, well, that's helpful for (laughs) studying the biological female body, isn't it?
1: So, the reason for this, I mean, honestly, was well intentioned. They were worried. Oh,
0: they're so sweet. They were trying to be
1: protecting my
0: future progeny. Yeah. Oh, how adorable. (laughs) Even though maybe
1: I'm 18, I'm not going to have children for 10 years. Yeah, it's a little odd because it's kind of saying that women almost aren't able to determine that they are pregnant. Women don't have rights to their own body, Brittany. doug get it right. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I okay. forgot for five seconds. Just kidding. never can. So essentially what they were trying to do was ensure that a drug in a woman's system currently or maybe would last in the system for a little bit longer wouldn't have adverse effects if she were pregnant or were to become pregnant. And this was to help with birth defects. As we know, some drugs can cause birth defects and this law came about in the United States because there was a drug called thalidomide in Europe in the 1960s that actually caused fetal malformation. Oh, that's terrible. It's really sad. And this caused a lot of fear of including women in clinical trials. So the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, prohibited women of, quote, childbearing potential, quote, in the phase one and early phase two trials. And those phases are when the dosage and efficacy are determined. And while women weren't prohibited from phase three trials, which are the large-scale trials, many researchers didn't include them due to the fears we just mentioned. And that is really nice for that protection of the children, but it did make a disadvantage for women still because they weren't able to be studied, meaning the drug could have effects on their bodies that weren't considered. So. It was still dangerous for the biological female population that we still weren't considered in these trials.
0: The last reason that Brittany and I want to mention for the knowledge gap, and there could be more reasons why biological females have not been studied as much as biological males in science, but this is the last reason that we're going to talk about here, and that is because, wait, this one's really going to surprise you. Okay. Science and the people who do science like researchers usually study wait for it.
1: What? Wait for it. <laughs>
0: they <Still waiting. laughs> wait for it are interested in
1: or where the funding comes from. What are the dollars interested in?
0: Many dollars are interested in illnesses that affect biological men. Many researchers are biological men studying things that are of interest to biological men. That's why we need more
1: women in STEM, more women in the medical field to study things that interest them.
0: And remember, we're not just talking about current day, because we're gonna get to this is like a progression. So we're we're like advancing forward in
1: time. It's chronological.
0: (laughs) But we're talking about, you know, over the past like 50, 60, 70 years science has studied the body of the biological male more than the body of the biological female so we're explaining why now it's a little more even and we're going to get into that in a minute so you know over the decades science has studied many topics that have really been exclusive or predominantly exclusive to biological males or predominantly seen in biological males or just things that are of interest to biological males like i don't know viagra
1: nope
0: (laughs) she went there (laughs) well yeah i went there because there's multiple pills for erectile dysfunction but there are so many conditions that predominantly affect women hold on let me name a few i'm ready uh fibromyalgia chronic pain syndrome migraine ibs incontinence endometriosis interstitial cystitis pcos chronic pelvic pain There's no pills to cure any of those things. Well, not only that, but so this is information from the book Doing Harm. But she mentioned that in 2008, the Institute of Medicine released a report called Women's Health Research, Progress, Pitfalls and Promise. Wow, what a great name for a report. I want to know more. Progress, Pitfalls and Promise. I love that triple alliteration. Women's Health Research. And it found that little progress had been made in illnesses that primarily affect women. Of course, endometriosis was one of the illnesses that they named in their report. But of course. They also named chronic pelvic pain, PCOS. And as I just mentioned, they also included conditions that affected a woman's quality of life, such as fibromyalgia, chronic pain, migraine, IBS, incontinence. And this report in 2008 said that very little progress had been made in these illnesses. And we got a couple more pills for
1: erectile dysfunction in the meantime. And it just really makes me feel angry.
0: I think so many people with endometriosis have said, you know, if a man had endometriosis, if a man had the kind of pain that we have monthly, some of us on a daily basis, if a man had the nausea and the hormonal migraines and the brain fog, and the blood. (laughs) While there has been a tiny population of biological males who have been affected by endometriosis, this is a disease that primarily affects biological females. And that's why the argument is often made that if it were the reverse, there would be so much more funding and information and knowledge on this disease. Because so many times in science, not just in medicine, but in all kinds of science, people study what they're interested in. And the money flows where there's interest.
1: So much of the science field historically has been predominantly dominated by men. So of course men want to study things that affect them. That's natural. We can't fault them for that. But as a result, things that affect women were not studied because there was no female representation to call for interest in that. So that's frustrating, and that's really disappointing that things that affect women predominantly have been left out of funding and studies.
0: Brittany, she's so kind, isn't she? I'm looking at Brittany's face while she says that, and I can see that she wants to say much different words than frustrating and disappointing. So I'll go ahead and I'll say it for you, Brittany. Overlooking biological females in science and medicine, it is Disgraceful, it's shameful, it's sexist, and it's led to a huge setback in medicine, not only for biological females, but for anyone who doesn't have a white biological male body. Leaving all of us out on important research has left us suffering from health conditions that maybe could have had answers by now, or maybe could have even been cured had anyone just cared about these issues in the first place or done research on our bodies. I mean, biological females were left out of studies that they really, really should have been included in. And right now we're going to talk about a few. And honestly, our exclusion from them is completely ridiculous. Like, totally ridiculous. For example, there was a study in 1958, and the idea was to explore human aging over the years. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, fascinating. I'd love to understand how my body ages.
1: Well, guess what, Brittany? Oh, no, I'm afraid to know. I feel like I know.
0: Okay, it was done by the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging. Ooh, fancy. Yes. And Brittany, guess how many women were enrolled in the study at the start?
1: If it was started in 1958, I'm guessing probably like zero.
0: That's right. Now, guess how many women were enrolled in the study after five years? Uh, Maybe
1: five.
0: Zero. Oh. Now, guess how many women were enrolled in the study after 10 years? The study now has been going on for 10 years to explore human aging.
1: Should I be optimistic and say like five or should. No. Okay, zero. Yep. Guess how many were enrolled in the study after
0: 15 years?
1: Is it still zero? Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Guess how many were enrolled
0: in the study after 19 years?
1: This is still zero.
0: Yeah. It took
1: 20 years to enroll
0: women in a study about human aging. That affects
1: 100% of people. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Do they think women were immortal, we just didn't age? Because that would be awesome and a good reason to not study us. <laughs> well, I assume, and I don't know, but I assume it's just because the biological female body is the same as
0: the biological male body, right? So or if it's we know how biological different and we don't want
1: to have to deal with all the differences. <laughs> if we know
0: how biological men age, we can just extrapolate that information on the biological female.
1: Hormones have nothing to do with aging. (laughs) Menopause isn't Um, real. They have everything to do with aging. It's ridiculous.
0: I lost an ovary and I aged in like five minutes after the surgery. That's why
1: you're so cranky now.
0: (laughs) We joke, but my skin did change after the surgery. It's not fair. Yeah. My hormones lowered. My estrogen went down. I am approaching menopause at 35. Thank you, ovary. Put it in gear. You can't. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> You've
1: got to pull twice the weight. It's not that hard. You Hold can on, do let it. Me t- ovary, ovary, ovary. <laughs> Maybe that'll release the hormones. <laughs> no, the ovary will just pop out and go, I'm out of here. Suck up. <laughs> Someone's calling me. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> we don't want that. Stay there.
0: But if the price to pay to not have as much endometriosis in my body as I started with before the surgery, Is to have a change in elasticity in my skin due
1: to hormones, then I will pay it. Are we forgetting the histamine or are we going to? Yeah. Okay. So take that
0: part out. That part really sucks. (laughs) But I feel like I'll also pay it not to have.
1: Yes. Enemy A hundred times over. Yeah. Yeah. So. (laughs) Fair. Fair trade off.
0: (laughs) All the things that came along with losing the ovary and excision surgery. Worth it. Yep. Worth it. (laughs) Definitely worth it not to be writhing in pain and vomiting. Yeah. We'll give you that one. Every time I eat. So that
1: was great. So there was a health study done on the effect that daily aspirin has on the risk of heart disease. Do you want to guess how many men participated in that study? 300. Much, much higher. A billion. Okay, that's not physically possible. (laughs) So let's go with a realistic number. Lower. 10,000. Double that and add some. 22,071 men. Oh my
0: gosh, it's like you know already. It's like I'm looking at the same <laughs> bullet points as you.
1: Yes, there was 22,071 men enrolled in this. And how many women, Amy? Ooh, hold on. Let me not look at the bullet points. Don't consult your notes. And use logic <laughs> and rationality. I'm going to go with big goose egg. <laughs> Zero. Ooh. Out of twenty-two plus thousand people zero women. Yep, seems logical.
0: All right, you're going to love this one.
1: Hormone replacement therapy
0: came about in the 1940s, and in the 1960s, many women were taking it. But hormone replacement therapy in women and the risks versus the benefits wasn't studied until the
1: 1990s. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The 1990s? So, 30-ish years after women had already been taking them for menopause? Yep. Oh, goodness. But in the 1960s,
0: there was a study done on estrogen and heart disease. Here you go. Guess how many women were in the study about estrogen
1: and heart disease? Shouldn't it have all been women?
0: Zero women, Brittany. Okay. Zero I'm just, women. Estrogen. I'm leaving. I'm really <laughs> okay, over this. <laughs> was studied on the man. <laughs> was studied. Originally, estrogen was studied on the biological male body. Yes. That makes no sense. For estrogen and heart disease. Of course it does, Brittany, because the biological male body and the biological female body are the same. Except for the boobs and the vagina and the Ugh. bleeding.
1: Come and, on uh, now. And the hormones. I could have told you they were different. I have no medical degree. And my favorite fact of all time is that there was a study on how obesity affected breast and uterine cancer. And it was only tested on biological males. How the heck? How on earth? How the bleep 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 did they test for uterine cancer on people who don't have uteruses? I'm at such a loss. I'm so confused. Please help me. Maybe they drew a uterus on their stomachs. <laughs> Does your drawn <laughs> uterus have cancer or
0: no? It is. Yeah, say and yes. once a month they d- use the red magic marker and they said period, period, period as they drew little blood drops coming from it. And it was like these biological males had real uteruses, uteri. How nice for them. Do they God. have the cramps too?
1: I want someone to draw a uterus on my stomach. <laughs> I want a fake uterus. Yeah, change, a my u- change my uterus. Change my uterus. I'll trade a real one out for that one. But also, Men get breast cancer at such a lower rate than women. So how did you even accurately test that? That seems so outlandish and ridiculous to test for breast and uterine cancer in a population that either never has it or has it on a much less scale statistically. That's just, that is something I will never understand science. I need answers. Well, that was the science of back then. I need the science of now.
0: Yeah, we're going to get to the science of now. So before we move on to the changing times, how the times Yay. have changed and progressed somewhat, not all the
1: way. Not but a lot, but something. Some progression Any happened. growth is good. <laughs> the
0: last study that we want to mention, which thank you to the website lupronvictimshub.com, where I learned this researching for the Lupron saga series that we did. Oh, that epic tale. Yeah, <laughs> but this fact never fit in anywhere. And then when doing the gender and sex bias and learning about all these studies that had only been done on primarily on biological men, and I was like, this is the perfect spot to fit that in. In 1986, the makers of Lupron did a study to figure out the metabolism of Lupron and to figure out the half-life of Lupron in the body. First of all, guess how many people they used in the study.
1: I couldn't stand to guess. How many? (laughs) Six. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was nowhere (laughs) near that guess.
0: Okay. As we mentioned, that is like, I mean, these other studies were done on like thousands of people, but like not six studies have to be done on a not a huge population. I mean, maybe not thousands, but I mean, like on enough people to actually get a like a good reading, you know, like six, six.
1: People, so you mean you shouldn't just gather your neighborhood and be like, "Hey, can y'all give me your arm for a minute? I'm gonna just inject you with something." The six of you look good. Come on over here, <laughs> your six aunts and uncles. You're like, "Oh, hey, how As you around the dinner table?" Let me just. <laughs> oh, and by the way, let me paint
0: a uterus on your stomach and magic marker. Okay. This sounds
1: less like science and more like magic. Okay, I'll paint yours in black,
0: but you can be menstruating, so I'll paint yours in red. They're <laughs> like,
1: um, um, I'm gonna leave now. I'm gonna take my leftovers and I'm gonna leave. Okay. Here's the next
0: issue with the study. They were six healthy people. So they weren't people with endometriosis or prostate cancer or precocious puberty, which is the conditions that Lupron, in its various forms, treats. There were six healthy people with no sickness, with no illness. Next. These people were given a low dose. They were given one milligram of Lupron. But the dose for endo, for example, is either 3.75 milligrams for the monthly or 11.25 milligrams for the one that you take every three months. They were given a dose one time. So Lupron is often administered intramuscularly, which is actually really hard to say. (laughs)
1: <laughs> muscularly, muscularly, muscularly. Oh, does that mean I'm going to get muscles? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> That's it.
0: If you, Whatever you say three times, you get it. Hold on. Money, money, money. So instead of giving the injection in the muscle, which is how they normally give Lupron, these six healthy people were given Lupron intravenously and under the skin. Why? That's not how Lupron is given, at least not for the treatment of endometriosis symptoms. Why on earth would they do that? I don't know. Why does science I mean, we're going back in time to nineteen eighty-six. What That's were
1: they 30 doing? Thirty years ago. Science I don't know. seems like a wild jungle
0: <laughs> in the nineteen eighties. A wild and I mean, even prior to that, my yeah, God. I mean like, it was the You have endometriosis. But... Let me put leeches in your vagina. Yeah. Like, yeah, that happened. Mm,
1: okay. <laughs> That'll help my medicine pain. has had a wild ride.
0: Leeches in my vagina. Thank you. That's what
1: every girl wants,
0: right? <laughs> Your boyfriend comes over, he's like, Oh, are we gonna be intimate tonight? You're like, Oh, I gotta let the me le-
1: gotta take out my leeches. <laughs> got my leeches in my vaginas. So gotta take my leeches out. Oh, let me just stick them on my finger while we're <laughs> like. I mean, bloodletting was around for a very long time. That's just unbelievable. And the final
0: icing on the cake, the final shot, not in the muscle, but
1: so intravenously, and and intravenously. <laughs> Is that these six healthy people were Oh, no. Hold on. Oh, it's no. going to leave you full, full uh, again. <laughs> <her> <laughs> if you say they were all biological males, I'm going to leave. Hold on. Slow clap for Brittany. Oh, gosh. My life is over. It ends here. I'm leaving.
0: <laughs> yes. It uh, was done on six healthy biological males. I mean, geez, at least I've done it in 60. <laughs> what know? if they went to their sports club and they had really high metabolism? <laughs> well, I mean, come on. Healthy. They're
1: good football players. <laughs> <laughs> it's not
0: helpful. If that's the half life of one milligram of Lupron taken intravenously among six healthy males, then great. Good for them. Great. But why is this information listed in the metabolism section of the prescribing information of Lupron Depot for endometriosis today? It's yet another example of a study done on biological males without the inclusion of females. Okay, and I will give you that it does make sense that Lupron in this study was tested on males because at that time it was 1986 and Lupron was only approved for prostate cancer in males. So Lupron wasn't approved for endometriosis in females until 1990. But nowadays we know that the biological male and female bodies have some differences. So it would be really good to get new research on females and update the metabolism section of the prescribing information of Lupron for endometriosis. Side note, in talking about metabolism for Lupron, there's been a lot of criticism about the available information. So I linked in our fancy resources tab for this episode an article that is called How Long Does Lupron or Its Metabolites Circulate? No one really knows. That article is by Lynn Milliken. And she is from Lupron Victims Hub, and she has done a lot of research on Lupron. So if you're interested in learning more about the metabolism of Lupron, you can go there to read further. And also within that article, there is a link to the metabolism study on the Healthy Six Males that we mentioned just now.
1: As you can see, these studies we just named are on various health conditions and were studied in men. Some diseases were only studied in men, or women weren't included in the studies until years later, or some aspects of medications were only studied in men. And these are just a few studies of the many that exist. If the female body isn't tested on, there's so many different side effects and implications that can happen with medication that will never be found until actual human females start taking it and having issues. And that's really scary. So it's really important to move in the right direction and be inclusive of all sexes in testing. And that's really heartbreaking to me because then,
0: you know, we go to the doctor and we let the doctor know, hey, we're having these certain symptoms and we think they're side effects from the medication. And because these medications have not been studied in our bodies of biological females, these side effects are oftentimes they're not known. They haven't been researched. They're not listed on the label. and then we're told, oh, you're worrying too much. Oh, it's in your head. Oh, the medicine should be gone from your system by now. Oh, no one ever reports that side effect. And you're left feeling scared and neurotic and hypochondriac. Like you're left with all these feelings and confusion. And really what you're feeling is valid. It's just that it's not being validated by the knowledge of science because it hasn't been studied.
1: In biological females, well, thank goodness it's not 1986 anymore, and times are changing. Well, okay, yes, it's not 1986 anymore. We, have, we are in the future. We've gone from... 30 years later. The jungle we were in, the medical jungle, we've moved up one village <laughs> to the next part of the jungle. And this is where we are in these changing times. So with the changing times have come some changes in the regulations and laws, which is really great. So in 1993, President Bill Clinton passed a law that obligated any studies done through the National Institute of Health to include women. But... <gasps> Thank you, 1993. But I have a caveat. Oh. So my caveat, though, is that women are only obligated in these studies to be included in the third phase of the study. What does that mean? Yeah. So, so what that means is Wait. that... What about phase one and two? Yeah, I'm going to get there. It's the sad part. So phase one and two are usually done on much smaller populations, and that's when they figure out if the medication or drug is effective. They figure out what the dosing is. And the tough thing about not including biological females in phases one and two is that the efficacy can be different based on your biological sex. The dosage can also and may also be different depending on your biological sex. So if men are only included in phase one and two when a drug is tested and it's found to not be effective in biological males, then it can be discontinued and the study ended and the drug may not go to market. When the drug may actually be highly effective for biological females, but none of them were tested in phases one and two. So studies aren't required to include biological females in the first two phases of a drug trial. They can, but many don't choose to do that. So by the time it makes it to phase three, where biological females are included, the efficacy and dosages are already mostly determined. So you mean that a drug might have been really, really good for me and might be really,
0: really good for my pain or for my IBS or for my migraine or for my whatever problem I have with my body. But that drug never came to market. It went away because it was possibly only tested on biological men. And those biological men were like, hmm. Nothing happened to me. Nothing worked for me. So they were like, oh, this drug doesn't work. But really,
1: it could have really excelled in the biological female body. But they'll never know. That's correct. I also want to point out that in 1993, the Food and Drug Administration also revoked their prohibition of women of childbearing potential.
0: Wow. So 1993 was a year of progress for women in clinical trials.
1: Yes. But at the same time, there wasn't really a huge rush for women to take part in the early phase trials since it actually wasn't mandated either. I know. So you can do it, but we're not going to tell you that you should. (laughs) And the new mandate from President Clinton to include women in phase three trials was for the National Institute of Health, which is the primary government agency for medical research in the United States. So his mandate actually didn't include the trials that are done by pharmaceutical companies, and about 90% of trials are. Oh,
0: so 1993 wasn't really a year of progress then.
1: Well, there was something else important that happened in 1993. Ooh, what was it? It's tied to the same law that Clinton passed. In that same law that he passed to include women in clinical trials, he actually also addressed that minorities need to be included in clinical trials, which is good and very important because up until this point, so much of the scientific research that was being done to date had been done on white people, specifically majority white males. Even today, people who are marginalized are still underrepresented in clinical trials. For example, In a report released by the FDA in 2015 to 2016 called the Global Participation in Clinical Trials Report, it said that Black people made up only 2.5% of clinical trial participants worldwide for cardiovascular disease trials. That number is already abysmally low, but it's even worse when we know that heart conditions actually disproportionately affect Black people. Overall, U.S. clinical trials were made up of 81% white participants, 14.5% black participants, 2.1% Asian participants, and 2.3% American Indian, Alaskan Native, Native Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander, and general other participants. So, Brittany, why is it important to be inclusive in clinical trials? Well, the participants should represent the population of patients that will be using the drugs. Mm, Yeah, that makes so much sense,
0: (laughs) doesn't it? It's like, duh. Like, hello. Duh.
1: (laughs) Well, as we know, different bodies can and do react differently. So we need a diverse population in the trials to include people of various races, ages, and sexes. How will we know what's the most effective, what the side effects are, what the implications of a medication are, if we don't include all of the people who will actually be using it. That FDA report from 2015
0: to 2016 definitely shows that we have much further to go in terms of inclusion of all people in clinical trials, and not just in the United States, but worldwide. The report did also state that 49% of the participants in the United States trials are now biologically female, but unfortunately, in other parts of the world, that statistic is much lower, and it shows that once more worldwide, we have a long way to
1: go to have an even participation of the biological female. Inclusivity in trials is something that we a hundred percent absolutely need for sure.
0: Something else that's really important to keep
1: in mind is
0: that it's not just enough to include biological females in the clinical trials. For drugs, it's really important that the data that comes out of the clinical trials is also analyzed by sex. And the reason why is because, you know, if we're in the studies and we have the biological males and the biological females, and there are differences in the side effects or the dosage or what they're experiencing or the effectiveness, but then we don't actually analyze what those differences are. And how do you apply that information? How do you write on the label that the dosage should be different? Or how do you put on the label that some side effects are for biological males or for biological females? Not only do biological females need to be included in the data, but research has to come out of the data and be published for the public knowledge and for the doctors to use. So
1: where are we today in these issues?
0: Well. There's been progress, but the problem isn't gone. So, in 2001, the United States Government Accountability Office reported that overall, in new drug testing, women made up 22% of the population studied in the initial small scale safety trials and then
1: 56% in the late phase trials. In 2010, the Committee on Women's Health Research and Institute of Medicine reported that even though women are included in these trials, oftentimes the trials are designed with the body of a biological male in mind. So meaning there's data points that a biological male would hit that a biological female may not. So while they're included, while women are included in these trials, they're not designed for their inclusion. So there's data being missed and being lost and not being gathered properly. Right. They're not
0: being designed for analysis for sex and gender differences. Mm -hmm. And then even if they are, a lot of times those analyses are not even being published. So, like, what's the point if we're not even seeing the outcome of the data? Oh, and by the way, this 2010 report said that little progress had been made in non-malignant gynecological disorders.
1: So you mean like endometriosis? Yeah. Of course. Fun fact, so according to the Food and Drug Administration's Office of Women's Health, women are almost twice as likely to have a really adverse effect to a medication compared to men. Oh, my God, is that because they haven't been studied in mm, mm, the body of a biological female? Yeah, probably. (laughs) And this is even more fun. Between 1997 and 2001, there was actually 10 drugs pulled from the market. Eight of these drugs posed a higher risk to women when they took them. That's a lot out of all 10, eight of them. Ooh, I have another fun fact for you. Ooh, yay. It can take
0: some 15 to 20 years for new medical information to make its way to the medical curriculum and be taught in medical school.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Or for information from new research to be put into the actual practice of medicine. That is ridiculous. (laughs) Wait, hold on. So that is probably why gynecologists are still being taught that retrograde menstruation is the cause of endometriosis. Because they're
1: 20 years behind the times.
0: <laughs> wow. We're all on social media. We're like, we we're born with endo. And endo is most likely caused from malariosis. And we we in the endo community as the patients, we're like preaching this. And there's, you know, many endo specialists who are. Are with the times. Yeah. In touch <laughs> with these times. But then, of course, there's like the resounding majority who are like,
1: it's because your uterus bleeds Backwards into the cavity. That's just astonishing that (laughs) medical school, which is seen as, you know, where all of the advancements in the medical field come from are being taught to young new doctors, is 20 years, two decades behind current medical advances. Usually. That's astonishing. Can be. Generally. Yeah, that's astonishing.
0: All these things are, are affecting my care. And it's just, it sickens me. I mean, doctors in training, first of all, they spend years of their lives learning medicine and they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their medical degree. And then we go to the doctor and we pay all this money to see the doctor and we're relying on their expertise and their years of experience and all of their knowledge. And then so many of us with endometriosis first diagnose ourselves via descriptions of symptoms that we saw on social media or on Google not from the doctor. We went to the doctor. We told the doctor, I have pelvic pain. I have pain during sex. I have excruciating pain during my period. Many times the doctor could not recognize those as a symptoms of endometriosis. And then we went to good old (laughs) WebMD, Mr. WebMD, Dr.
1: (laughs) Google, Madam
0: Bing. I have these (laughs) symptoms in WebMD. Like you go to the page and then like a red devil face comes out. It like pops <laughs> out of the computer screen and it's
1: like, you have endometriosis! Go see a doctor! And you're like, oh my god! I did, but I, nothing <laughs> happened! I saw 12. No one mentioned endometri-what? What is this?
0: Endometri-what, sis? And then you go to finally find a doctor who knows endometriosis and they're like, oh yeah, you tick all the boxes. You definitely have endometriosis. Easy endo- diagnosis. I can't <laughs> believe it took you so long to be diagnosed. You're like, I do no one knew what it was said. I had a bad period and they said it's in your head. It's not okay. Disgraceful. Well, the knowledge gap, as Maya Dusenberry calls it, is improving, but it's not a hundred percent improved. And this leads to what's known as quote unquote medically unexplained symptoms in the body of a biological female. And unfortunately, medically unexplained symptoms are often seen as psychosomatic in women. But not in men. <laughs> And then in the next two episodes, we're going to go more into this and the reasons why. So if everything that we spoke about today interests you, then really encourage you to go to the internet and learn more. Concerns about the knowledge gap are very, very real. And they can lead to women not being taken seriously by the doctor. They can lead to death from side effects or from not being treated for disease because the disease presentation wasn't recognized and how it presented in the body of a biological female because it had been studied in the body of a biological male. And as we all know, because most of us have experienced this with endometriosis, the knowledge gap can lead to delays in diagnosis and a reduced quality of life. The FDA has a page online, and it's called, quote, Regulations Guidance and reports related to women's health, end quote. And a lot of the information that we talked about today was found there. And if you go there, you can actually see a timeline of much of what we've spoken about today, and you can get links
1: to a lot of these reports that we mentioned as well. So we're going to leave off today, and in the next episode, we'll talk about what Maya Dusenberry calls the trust gap, and why women aren't trusted to know our bodies, and also the history of hysteria. <gasps> Ooh, know, that's going to get a Oh, May my well God. <laughs> God. So in episode four of this series, we'll talk about what we can do to better our care now that we know about these biases. So we thank you so much for listening today, for
0: learning throughout these last decades with us about the knowledge gap and the way that science has primarily been focused on the body of the biological male so if you want to reach out to us we are on instagram we are at in 16 years of endo and we are on the website in 16 years.com thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time